Welcome to Turning Conscience into Action, the Earth Charter Podcast. Join Miriam Vilela, Earth Charter International Executive Director, in her fascinating conversations with great thinkers, scholars, and activists from around the world who are working in the fields of sustainability, ethics, education, and social transformation. Our purpose is to generate new insights on how to face current global challenges and inspire informed action. Okay, hello. So welcome again for, to our Earth Charter podcast. Today we have the honor and the pleasure of having a conversation with uh, Ron Engel. Ron Engel was involved in the drafting process of the Earth Charter back in the 90s. He very much involved also in the IUCN Ethics Working Group. Uh, professor Engel is Professor Emeritus of uh, Social Ethics. So thank you, Ron, for joining us today. Good to be talking to you, Miriam. So Ron, let me start with the first question here is if you can share with us, you have been in the study of ethics for so many years. Could you share with us why did you get interested in this study of ethics? Why, how, and when? Okay, <laughs> that's a long, long story. Um, let me just maybe try to give you the arc of my life, um, which extends over a number of decades now. Uh, I was born in the 1930s, came of age in the post-World War II period in the United States. And I think my first serious encounter with ethics came in the civics classes that we had in high school. In the United States, following the Second World War, uh, there was a period before the Cold War when um, the aspirations for founding ethically uh, serious and significant democratic societies um, what was, was a major concern, uh, certainly in education and uh, also in civil society and in um, really in the political parties generally. Um, so our civics classes, uh, this was at the time of the founding of the United Nations. This was, we had UN clubs in our high school and we oh. captured, were introduced, that was remarkable, that's probably not true anymore. Uh, the, uh, the, the, what captured our imaginations and our, our commitment really, uh, was the hope or possibility of persons assuming the role of citizens who were seriously concerned about building a democratic society that had freedom, equality, and solidarity at its heart. The three great, of course, flags of democratic uh, life, uh, red, white, and blue, uh, that uh, came out of the uh, Enlightenment, out of the, uh, the various democratic revolutions across the world over many centuries. And, uh, but it was a very idealistic, very committed. Uh, and our teachers were at that time, many of them uh, returning veterans from the war who had a new appreciation for what they were trying to fight for in the Second World War. And of course, the, the terrible uh, experience of fascism 
and so on in uh, that period. Which what was, an incredible time to be in primary school, no? In school yeah. in the U.S. Uh, with so much hope, no? Of building not only the U.S. but the whole world in a new, a new yes. order after the World War II in the beginning of the U.N. So you're receiving your civics class. Yes, Miriam, that's and you're right. Uh, that's you got it exactly right. And so we had, you know, we had a lot of practice in school as to student government and, uh, uh, you know, the preparation of citizenship. We did studies of our community. And anyhow, I could go on quite a bit about that. I found confirmation of that within the liberal Protestant community that I joined in my teens, which is the Unitarian Universalist uh, Church, which is a very progressive or liberal Protestant community. And they, um, you know, the leaders of that particular community, which I identified with um, for many years, uh, were of that, also of that mind. Um, so that, that was the beginning. And then, however, uh, as the 1950s progressed and we moved into the 60s, we discovered uh, that these values that we had been taught uh, were not necessarily being carried out in the society at large, particularly around matters, for example, of race. So and seeing this inconsistency uh, between precisely. what you were taught and what you saw in reality, that sparked your Yeah, and I'll have to tell interest. you, Miriam, uh, that's perfect, because I had a, uh, a very personal experience as a young teenager, uh, I was asked to speak before the Parent Teachers Association of the school in about 1954. And I gave a little talk about how the high school needed to be racially integrated. And immediately the principal of the school who was sitting in the audience popped up like a jack in the pulpit uh, and um, turned to his, the. Uh, parents who were sitting there and said, I want you to know that this is not the policy of this school, what Ronnie Engel has just said. Amazing, that, yeah? Yeah, this 1954 was in where, in the US? In uh, um, northern Baltimore, out uh, the inner suburbs, or just at that point, Baltimore, like other American cities, of course, were, was expanding with the post-war, World War II economic boom. And uh, we lived in a um, little row house in, uh, you know, uh, probably middle, lower middle class, my, my uh, family. I won't go back into all that. But there was, you know, I also had strong family support uh, for uh, these uh, strong democratic uh, aspirations. But we discovered, you know, we, we discovered in our innocence that uh, this was not necessarily at all the, the actual uh, belief of many of our neighbors. And at the same time, I've got to say that uh, we had been exposed to, you know, the, the atomic bombing of Japan and uh, people in our world who were very prominent, Einstein, uh, Albert Schweitzer, these were people that we read about and lived, and uh, the uh, despair over the uh, uh, nuclear buildup uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States and Europe uh, was a, very much of a moment. And we realized then that peace was not so easily won, given obviously what was happening and what had happened. 
and that the United States was uh, responsible for the use of atomic weapons, which we deployed. Uh, and then the environment. So we had justice, democratic aspirations for social justice, the, um, the world, the Cold War, and what that meant about any possibilities for uh, international peace. And then we had the environment coming on. And as a very young kid, uh, I, uh, when our community was first built, I mean, this is a story repeated over and over again, um, we were on the edge of the city, adjacent to beautiful countryside. We had relatives who had farms, small farms, were self-sufficient. Uh, you know, it was just a, a Maryland, the state of Maryland was a beautiful place. And, uh, but we experienced with the post-World War II economic boom and the uh, growth in population and um, consumerism and the automobile and so on, that uh, this uh, environment was being destroyed. Yes, so the whole context in which you were living, no? uh, after the war, the beginning of the UN, the, the racial discrimination in the US, uh, all of that helped to spark your interest to the, this challenges and issues. So yeah. let me say uh, one thing, Ron, uh, you have been involved so much in the study of ethics for, for most of your life. However, many people perceive ethics as something that's too abstract, not practical, not useful. And uh, these are the kind of people that stress the, that the importance of uh, that we should all be focused on action. So uh, I see ethics as an instrument of social transformation. And I would like to ask if you could share with us uh, what do you think of that and, and, and maybe to start by saying what is ethics and why that is important? Wow. <laughs> uh, that's a large subject, of course. Uh, let me just say, before we leave the other uh, the background, that ethics, of course, came immediately in my reaction to racial injustice to nuclear war or the possibility of the use of war and to the environmental desecration and uh, 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 deterioration of, the, of, of nature in our immediate world. But also we were hearing more and more about what was happening around the rest of the world as well. So I've always been a, uh, Marion, a, uh, uh, advocate for the position that we learn a lot by F about what is we hope to be the I, the right ethics in reaction to what we see as the wrong actions. In other words, you a child I think learns justice almost immediately because ch children have a way of spotting unfairness. If you've noticed in your own children, uh, they also can bemoan the hurt of an animal. I remember my father telling me, like Schweitzer actually, uh, another very interesting experience. He didn't realize it was Schweitzer's experience, but when he shot uh, with a slingshot a little bird and killed it and it fell down at his feet, he then had a whole new appreciation for why you should not do that. Because he saw the consequences of immorality or you know, of unethical appreciation of nature. 
And that uh, certainly many, uh, obviously we, we know many, many, many stories of veterans that came back from war that were gung-ho to go out and fight. And once they actually killed somebody, they began to worry about very seriously about what it meant uh, to engage in, in military action. So um, the, the energy, a lot of the energy for what is the good and the, the true, uh, and the right comes from our experiences of seeing it negated. And clearly with the George Floyd situation, which has just occurred as you and I, just a few weeks before you and I are recording this, uh, that's an incredible example. Um, here clearly on video with somebody being badly, badly treated, really murdered. And the outrage across our country and even across the world uh, was uh, Kindle. So um, we, I think we, it, it's both, Immanuel uh, Kant said that ethics is both a, a, uh, a carrot as well as a stick. You need the ideals and you come to those ideals in many ways out of your, out of your experience. And then also you need the kick of seeing how they are denied. So the real, the real struggle is morality versus immorality. And the various, uh, I think to, to a large degree myself, the various kinds of uh, statements that we have such a relativistic world are really uh, misplaced. I find that uh, very largely across human history and uh, that there's wide agreement on the fundamental elements of what consists of what is involved in justice. There certainly is wide agreement uh, on the aspirations for peace, uh, for security, and there's wide agreement on um, the uh, increasingly and, and at various stages in our history, maybe even more in the 1800s than, than right than later. I mean, they, these, these things come in and out of the social history of our world. Um, wide agreement on the need for respecting and caring for the environment. So now with regard to ethics, and let me just say this, this quickly, because this is really kind of the pattern in which I, I worked and which I came to gradually in my years of teaching and research and writing and so on. Um, ethics is usually divided between principles of the right of justice, of distribution of the goods of the world so that each person gets his or her proper due or treatment, fairness. Uh, this principle of equality is fundamental in that regard. Uh, and rights, the whole tradition of human rights comes out of the understanding of ethics as primarily a matter of justice. On the other side, uh, much as, as least as much ethical thought and experience has been based upon what is good. What is the good life? What are the qualities of the good life? What are the virtues that we should be practicing or can practice? Care, compassion, concern for the well-being of others, uh, honesty, integrity. Uh, that's, you know, it's often called virtue ethics but it's finally based upon our experiences of what is good in our life. Then um, I have added another um, leg to that stool, which is covenant. 
And gradually over my years of teaching, which were both within the fields of philosophical ethics as well as religious ethics, uh, I came to an appreciation of the importance of covenant to bring those two together into an integrated approach. What do you mean by covenant in this sense? Covenant, let me see, the best, the best model <laughs> that you could use maybe for many people, maybe not adequately for others, but let me just try, uh, is the, the marriage vows that are traditionally exchanged. I know they're not the same around the world, of course, but nonetheless, a good number of the families that are founded in the world still participate in some kind of marriage uh, covenant in which each party makes a vow to the other that he and she will support, care for, love, and be faithful to that person in sickness and in health, and as the classical covenant that my wife and I made in our marriage said, until death do us part. So sort of it, a commitment, no? Expressing exactly. uh, commitments. Exactly. It's an ultimate commitment, and it's not a contract. A contract is a quid pro quo. You don't go into the marriage ceremony and say, look, if you do the dishes, uh, I'll sweep the floor, or you do this and I'll do that. And if you don't do it, then the whole thing is over. Uh, I've, I, as a minister, actually, um, I've, I've had that vocation as well as a professor. Uh, I have uh, led a number of marriage ceremonies, and a couple couples have had that idea of their marriage, and I've had to disabuse them of what the, of the, of the, that's going to hold them very long at all. Uh, a, a marriage contract is not going to last very long because sooner or later one or the other is not going to do exactly what he or she said they were going to do. And uh, it has to be based mm. on something much deeper than that. So do, now, what do, how do you see a covenant uh, with regards to ethics? Okay, so the covenant is made unilaterally. That is, again, it's not a quid pro quo. I don't make my covenant with you depending upon you make it to me. We make it in the presence of each other. I pledge my faithfulness to you, care for you, concern for you, affirmation of your intrinsic value, your dignity. Um, and in order to, for us, I then outline the ethical content of what that covenant will be. And it will consist of a certain understandings, of course, of justice, of my uh, concern that you receive equal benefits of our marriage together, and uh, you are free as a person. This is a democratic marriage I'm talking about. Uh, you are free as I am free, and uh, a great deal of our marriage will be uh, commit, uh, uh, dedicated to sharing with one another, speaking freely in dialogue mm -hmm. about our situation. And then there are the virtues. In other words, covenant then, and the virtues have to do with care and uh, honesty and faithfulness uh, to the other person. So the covenant brings together both the ethical ideas of um, of justice, 
and the ethical ideas of what is good and what is virtuous. And they're founded finally in the experience of goodness, love, that the couple experienced when they first fell in love and decided finally to, to make a marriage covenant. Mm -hmm. Now on that basis, I would say, um, and that has been used, that's very deeply embedded within the Christian and the Judaic uh, traditions, but it also is, is uh, present in Confucianism and uh, other uh, faiths. that you just mentioned about IUCN, the, World, the International Union of Conservation of Nature, you were quite involved in the uh, Caring for Earth uh, document. Um, uh, I understand that you played a leading role in the adoption of a world ethic for living sustainably, uh, which was then the foundation of uh, the second world conservation strategy called Caring for the Earth which was released in 1990. Can you share with us some highlights of that process? What did, did that mean in, in the actual content of Carry for the Earth? Because we are so involved in that process back in yes, the Yes, yes, yes. Well, those were some of the best years of my life, uh, Marian. Um, and that's how I met Brendan Mackey, who's been such a significant supporter of the Earth Charter, a member of the drafting committee. And it's how I met Stephen Rockefeller, actually, who, came to be the chair of the drafting committee. Um, uh, there's a, a lot that goes into that. Let me just say in 1984, I had a sabbatical. I had just finished a book on one of the major environmental and social struggles in the United States, uh, which uh, took place outside Chicago and uh, a long century long struggle for the preservation of an area uh, which would be a commons for all the people in Chicago. And that had uh, racial and many other implications, but it also was the center for the science of ecology in the United States. So it was a very important period. And I worked several years on that book, published it in 1983. And then I said, what in the world is going on in the rest of the world? <laughs> and uh, the, uh, I was led to UNESCO uh, which, like you, I so profoundly value UNESCO. And uh, for a year, I was given a sabbatical and I attached myself as a uh, consultant to UNESCO on their Biosphere Reserve Program and their World Heritage Sites around the world. And my wife and for the first time, we had a chance to travel in different parts of the world and to meet many of the people that were working with UNESCO including a good deal of time in Africa. Um, and when I came back and reported back to UNESCO, uh, one of the leaders there, Michel Batiste, said, Ron, you ought to go to IUCN. I had never heard of IUCN, believe me. I, this was a whole new world and they gave me directions because we were heading down to Switzerland anyhow. And so one day I knocked on the door of IUCN's headquarters for your audience, the World Conservation Union is an incredible organization, very similar to the World International Labor Organization. It consists of government and civil society members. So it's a center for dialogue and for uh, policy making that includes both governments and civil society. Uh, just built right into the whole thing. And they've taken leadership for uh, 
international conservation uh, issues. Uh, and they go back many years uh, doing that. So um, I arrived, we arrived in Glan, knocked on the door and um, announced ourselves. And found, uh, I found myself in conversation with uh, Kenton Miller, uh, who was at that time the director general, and Jeff McNeely, who was the chief scientist, both of whom were Americans. And in fact, um, Kenton Miller grew up in Chicago and learned his ecology in the Indiana Dunes that I had just finished this book on. So we hit it off very quickly. And then he learned that I was studying and teaching ethics. And he said, well, ethics is becoming a major factor in our organization now. This was 1984. Oh, look at this. 1984? Yes. Well, the first essay ever published on environmental ethics in any academic journal, uh, English-speaking journal, certainly, was 1976. So you can see how new this stuff was, how new it was. And I was beginning to write essays on environmental ethics. This was a whole new field. And uh, people object, uh, people couldn't understand it. Ron, you were fighting for racial justice. Now you're talking about the environment. Is that, aren't you kind of just uh, leaving behind the real issue and uh, going off into this, uh, you know, nature thing? And of course, as you know, Miriam, you know, we had to point out and learn ourselves how deeply interdependent social justice, environmental, intellectual, ecological integrity, and world peace are. They're just matters, they are so interdependent in each way. And I find that one of the most powerful aspects of the Earth Charter is precisely that. It integrates these great uh, different major sessions, sides of our global problematic. At any rate, um, I went to uh, IUCN and was invited to come to the Madrid General Assembly in 1984 and address the assembly on ethics. They had never had anyone do that, so I did. I prepared very hard for it. Um, and I gave a speech on the uh, centrality of ethics to the work of the World Conservation Union. And I've just got to say, it wasn't my particular rhetoric. It was in the, the spirit of the times. I was overwhelmed after that speech with people volunteering to come together and create some kind of an ethics working group that would do that. And that's, uh, that was the beginning of the idea of the IUCN World Conservation Strategy on character? Precisely. The, well, the, the, the first strategy, the uh, World Conservation Strategy, which is the kind of thing that IUCN does, um, these major policy statements, as you know, uh, was 1980. Robert Prescott Allen wrote a, uh, and he, in, he inserted in that just a couple sentences about the need for a new ethics if the world conservation strategy was going to mean anything. And then remember, the World Charter for Nature was brought to the UN by IUCN, by the Legal uh, the Law Commission, and passed by the General Assembly or adopted by the General Assembly of, of the uh, United Nations about what, 1983? So this was a very yeasty period right now. And there was only one, one uh, vote no, which was the United States. Already we had a sign of how the United States was beginning to retreat from its international responsibilities and leadership. Um, but nonetheless, 
uh, here in Madrid were these, you know, I, I, and then the ethics working group, uh, they appointed me chair of this, earth, this working group, and we began to work on the ethic that would, in fact, inform IUCN. That was our task. And we had um, uh, the chairs of each of the commissions was members of the working group. I held workshops in the United States and in several other countries abroad. Um, and uh, we had a similar thing to the drafting of the, of the Earth Charter. It was a preliminary run through in many ways. And many of the people that were involved became them active in the Earth Charter movement. And in the course of that, that's when I met Stephen, um, Rockefeller, and uh, we had a conference at Middlebury College where he was teaching on caring for the earth. Now, realize the primary principle uh, that overarches the entire earth charter, respect and care for the community of life, was first articulated as the first principle of caring for the earth. So the carryover was direct. So the earth and charter certainly builds on caring for the earth. Yes, exactly. It expands it tremendously, but nonetheless, that was the, the door, the, the, the platform was prepared. Uh, I don't think any other document uh, is as, uh, provides as extensive a platform for the Earth Charter uh, that we finally drafted as, the, as Caring for the Earth. And Stephen and I were very close colleagues in, uh, became very close in that process. And we sort of formed, the, in many ways, the nucleus for the drafting committee in that process. And IUCN then became a partner. And as you, you and I experienced, we had this marvelous opportunity of partnership with the Commission on Environmental Law within IUCN, who had drafted a draft covenant, using covenant now in the more narrow legal sense, which would accompany the Earth Charter, or also originally they wanted it to accompany caring for the Earth. And uh, just like the U.S. Constitution followed the Declaration of Independence. So you have this ethical covenant, and then you have the legal covenant, which takes some of the ethical, the, the meat of the ethical principles in the ethical covenant and translates it into law, either national or international law. Um. Yeah. You moved um, from the caring for the earth process in IUCN right into the earth charter drafting process, more or less. So you served as a core member of the International Drafting Committee for the Earth Charter. Do you remember uh, this drafting process? Uh, do you remember any specific principle uh, in the earth charter when well it was drafted? And if you can share uh, a story of a specific principle of their shadow while it was uh, being drafted and how that evolved and the thinking around that. I, I, I can and I would love to and I'd love to have you and I just take that text and go over it because uh, that was such a gift for us, I'm sure you agree, to be members of that group. Yes, sure. And, uh, uh, I was on the telephone with, I'm sure, as you were, I'm sure, with Stephen sometimes two or three, four day, times a week. Um, and uh, yeah, I, 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 I've often thought of that. Uh, there's many, uh, let me just mention a couple. By the way, in the Earth Charter, with regard to the covenantal approach, 
when you say that the protection of Earth's vitality, diversity, and beauty is a sacred trust. That is very much out of the covenantal tradition of ethics. This is something that we are, that life is a gift which we are entrusted with. And that's what covenants do. We entrust one another with our lives and our future. And that, uh, so I, 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 it's, even though we, we were not using the language of covenant as prominently in that period when we were drafting it, nonetheless, um, in looking back at it, I realized that I was becoming increasingly, um, and we were also uh, increasingly affirming that kind of an approach. Uh, but there, there was, oh gosh, if you look at the, <laughs> um, the, one of the most uh, debated points was this point of intrinsic value, if you recur. Right there, respect life, uh, um, respect and care for the community of life. There it is, the, the overarching first, the major prim primary uh, ethical uh, principles of the Earth Charter are laid out in part number one. And then the first part under that is respect Earth and life and all its diversity and recognize that all beings are interdependent and every form of life has value regardless of its worth to human beings. Now in part that's uh, uh, indebted to the World Charter for Nature which uses that language regardless of its worth to human beings. But intrinsic value was something that many of us wanted to affirm. It was a major topic in environmental ethical debate. And, and what does intrinsic value mean? It means that the, that the everything has, in some sense, an autonomy and experience for itself. That it uh, it isn't simply an object. It's what uh, you know Thomas Berry calls a communion of. Um, subjectivities of subjects, not of objects. That the world, it, it, even at the most primitive level, uh, every plant, every animal, uh, every sentient animal, but not only sentient animals, they have a life which is in some degree free and purposeful. Hmm. They, have a, they have, as indigenous people often said, they have a soul. A tree has a soul. And uh, it is therefore, um, it's a vow. Martin B uh, Buber spoke, of course, of the I-vow relationship between humans. And someone asked him at some point, well, do I, can I have a vow relationship to a tree? And he said, yes, of course. If I address that tree as a being that is both separate from me, but also clearly related to me, and yet, and I honor it, for its integrity, for its, uh, its incredible capacity, its vitality, its beauty, it's got intrinsic value. It's not only the value that I might attribute to it because of some use I want to put it to, chop it up for firewood or whatever. Um, hmm. It is, in fact, like another human person. It's a beautiful example. But what then would be the difference between intrinsic value and the way it's articulated in principle 1A? Well, that's the problem. That's the issue. We had a debate back and forth. And if you recall, we were in communication with the Dalai Lama uh, constantly because the Buddhist 
uh, leadership, the leadership he gave, not only for world ethics, but for the Buddhist community was incredibly significant. As we try to do this double thing of reaching as great consensus as we can, but at the still at the same time standing for something. And, uh, you know, we have a vision. It's not just any vision. It's not just whatever people happen to vote. It's a, uh, a vision of what we believe is true and beautiful and, and ethically right. So um, the Dalai Lama reported, I remember the telephone call coming in from Stephen one night, and he said, we can't use intrinsic value. In some of the earlier drafts, we had it. And I said, oh dear. And he said, yes, the Dalai Lama called. <laughs> and he said that some of his scholars said that would not be affirmed by Buddhist philosophy. Now, you and I, at least I, cannot enter into the debate of what is appropriate or inappropriate Buddhist philosophy. But in fact, we got a veto on intrinsic value. So we went back and forth for a good hour trying to decide what to do. And Marion, at some point, I said, Stephen, let's just say value. Let's just say value. And I remember Stephen say, my God, yes, that's what it'll be. And that's what it was. <laughs> because then um, I think that the, the, the key message that the principle 1A wants to, to address, the concept is there. Yes, uh, yes. It didn't did lose it. anything, in, in fact. Uh, and I think that what we need to look at with this uh, specific example is the importance of dialogue and listening and saying, okay, what do we want to say with this concept and finding the right words, but words that will not put off groups or people, but words that were carefully chosen to really invite various groups uh, to, to feel part of this, rather than, than feel, okay, I'm off because I, I cannot relate to this or that word. Uh, the only, yes, the only qualification I'd make to what you just said, I certainly agree with, and let's get to that last dialogue point, um, is that, uh, however, that often, for the sake of consensus, we concede the substance. And we were not ready in writing the Earth Charter, right, to concede that every form of life has value. That was the position we took. And there were many, many people ready to argue and say, no, no, that tree doesn't have any value except what I put on it. That's, in fact, the dominant position, I'm sure, even today for most Americans. And actually, it's something that is very, very much in need for us to help how to say, amplify human thinking, that uh, it has yes, value regardless of how I see this or how... Precisely, how precisely. I, the value that so I give to that. It meant we take a position, um, a strong position of affirmation of the value of everything, but we didn't insist on a precise articulation of that that would in any way uh, stand in the way of you know, very dedicated uh, people like the Dalai Lama uh, uh, joining it. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, but at the same time, we didn't say, well, not gonna, we're, we're not going to talk about uh, value at all because there's a lot of people who don't think it has it at all. We really 
you know, we had a vision and uh, we, we stuck with it. Another thing that, uh, of course, another, the, example? On, another example, everything on democracy, I had my hand in one way or another because uh, uh, democracy and the democratic faith was something that uh, Stephen and I uh, shared very deeply. And uh, so build democratic societies that are just participatory, sustainable, and peaceful was worked out over a period of time to be sure to, uh, anyhow, there, there's so, so many, but let me just add one. I remember uh, that, uh, and I think it, it's, it seems like a small matter because it's one little word, but nonetheless, it is absolutely fundamental. And I uh, was so pleased when uh, the committee was willing to accept it. If you look um, down into the principles, uh, democracy, nonviolence, and peace, part four, uh, principle 13, strengthen democratic institutions at all levels. Democracy is through this entire document. And provide transparency and accountability in governance, inclusive participation in decision-making, and access to justice. And then you go over to little C, sub-principle C, protect the rights to freedom of opinion, expression, peaceful assembly, association, and dissent. Dissent. This stands behind the Hong Kong protesters right now. And I added that word, dissent. And I think without the freedom of dissent, you just don't have a, uh, you certainly don't have a democratic society. You have opened the doors to authoritarianism. And probably many groups or, or governments uh, would find a little difficult even to work with these uh, words nowadays, like to ensure the freedom of dissent uh, to some certain groups. Yes, this has made the Earth Charter a pretty, pretty strong statement over against what has been a worldwide almost movement toward increasingly authoritarian governments, whether they're the left or the right or the populist or whatever you want to call them. Uh, that, that is a reflection of the seriousness of the crisis we're in right now. Mm. And you certainly cannot have science, serious science, without dissent. Science is built on dissent. So you, you, you can't have political freedom without dissent. You can't have ethics without dissent. So that, so, that wording was easy to be crafted, uh, principle 13 and 13C? Well, we worked at it, if you recall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was- uh, Took a while. I was, actually, I was given the responsibility for crafting the first draft of the way forward, the final uh, part. And, um, I would say there that, uh, and this maybe will take us into the, uh, if you want to talk a little bit about the book that's just been published, um, the, uh, into the importance of dialogue, which you have so well stated. We really made a very radical statement when I look back at it here, the beginning of the way forward, as never before in history, as never before in history, Common destiny beckons us to seek a new beginning. This is a 
again, uh, running it through my covenantal perspective, covenants do that. Covenants are made, um, and then, you know, for many, many years, the modern world has been committed to a covenant of growth in economic uh, quantity, not necessarily in quality, but quantity. And it's been committed, certainly the major covenants of many countries, certainly the United States, has been a strong military that can dominate the world. These are wrong covenants. These are covenants what the Old Testament prophets used to call the Hebrew prophets called covenants with death. So you have to be struggling for the life-giving covenants, the faithful covenants to life. I've, I've used that terminology a lot in my speaking and writing, uh, trying to be faithful to the journey, the evolution of life, and to those many, many millions of people that have given their lives that will, uh, for the sake of a, of a greater and more beautiful and just world. Um, and then we say here, 2000, we're now going to have even a greater start again than marked any of the great epochs of the past. Uh, that's really hard to, to, we need to really have a, a, a Marion, a conference on that, because uh, it, it, what we were saying, as you know, quite effectively was we were now going to situate the whole struggle for justice and peace now within the environmental struggle for a sustainable planet. And that was a shift in human civilization, which although it's anticipated by many, many figures in the past, nonetheless is a really fundamental shift. It requires a new covenant. And that is, in many ways, what the Earth Charter, I would say, is. And it says right here, this requires a change of mind and heart, a new sense of interdependence, universal responsibility. We must develop a sustainable way of life, locally, nationally, regionally, and globally. That, to me, was terribly important. I, I, I worked hard to get the acceptance of the wording that this needs to go on, not only internationally, of course internationally, but it's built on the pillars of each community. So as you, you may know, um, and this anticipates again, discussion perhaps of the, the book that's just been published, um, I've been an advocate for local community and national earth charters as the feet under which the international earth charter, the one we're now talking about uh, would find its grounding. Mm -hmm. The crisis in the global ethics uh, and the future of global governance, uh, there's so much in the book. So can you share with us uh, just the gist of what you wanted to say on the, the chapter you have on the summons to a, a new actual axial age, the promise, limits, and future of the Earth Charter? Yes, uh, I uh, wrote that chapter uh, after becoming, uh, having, having an experience at the uh, 2012 uh, World Conservation uh, Congress and became uh, aware of the new situation in many respects that the 21st century had challenged the Earth Charter that was adopted in 2000 with. And, um, 
I argue in that, that we need now to pick up the dialogue that led over a number of decades to the Earth Charter itself and renew that dialogue. And that meant um, being uh, self-critical. There, there's no greater uh, advertisement for the Earth Charter than to have it understood by its, uh, its admirers and its advocates and its enemies uh, that uh, we can be self-critical, we can learn, we can grow. And that's what the last section actually of the Earth Charter calls for. We will continue to learn, we will continue to have a dialogue. And so I looked at the Earth Charter and in a number of ways and uh, laid out what I thought was uh, a couple issues that needed to be addressed. I thought that equality was not adequately represented. The word was not adequately represented, the concept. We use the word equity instead of equality, and they're not the same. Uh, and that was just one example of a number of ways in which we need to have a ongoing global conversation. I then propose a kind of agenda at the end of 10 items, which I felt would, were very vital uh, for the global ethics debate, at which the Earth Charter as the primus inter paris, first among equals, I think, of global uh, ethical initiatives in the world today uh, could convene and sponsor, if we could find the resources, of course, uh, a really uh, renewed dialogue such as we had in the 1990s. Yes, to continue the ongoing dialogue no, to exactly. global ethics. So, so that's what we... Mm -hmm. In that, do you think, uh, do you see the Earth Shadows as a global ethic for 21st century and why? I do if it continues to sponsor that dialogue. I think in many ways it's a it's still a very challenging document, but I do think it needs to be alive if it can be the earth the dialogue. And the charter as it is is dated. It's dated to 2000. And it does not mention climate change. It doesn't talk about what kind of an, a global economy we need, really. Uh, it uh, it is not fully adequate to 2020. But how would you ever expect it to be? Uh, it, it's a creature of its time. I think generally 90% of it is still powerful and relevant. But unless we continue to grow it and make it directly relevant, such as I think in the word equality, equality should be not simply a matter of our saying everyone's equal, it should be a goal. We need, we need a world in which we aim to be equal. And uh, equity doesn't say that. Equity simply says we need to be fair. Um, so that's just one of many examples. The Earth Charter needs great development in the area of international peace. Uh, it makes very bold statements with regard to uh, uh, how we need to eliminate nuclear weapons. Yes, mm -hmm. my gosh. How are we going to get there? So. Sure. Part of the dialogue is, not, is on the fundamental principles, which, you know, don't need much in, any, in updating, but some. Mm -hmm. And then the real dialogue is on what policies right. we need. So that's, uh, that's the gist of that, of that essay. Mm -hmm. It's the challenge to take up that dialogue again, to not say we finished the work, it's over with, all we mm -hmm. have to do, you know. The second so essay, so go ahead. Yep. 
so it's good for the audience to to uh, to see that what you write uh, many, among the many many points that you make in the in the book chapter is is to stimulate uh, or to invite people to continue uh, on this ongoing dialogue to search for values and ethics. Um, That's the major as, message. The yeah. major mm -hmm. message yeah. of that book, and it tries to model that dialogue by the chapters that uh, come afterwards and take up and respond. Mm -hmm. Now, Ron, you have taught ethics uh, and social ethics for many years. You have taught global ethics or social ethics for many years. And I, of course, throughout these years, you have built a lot of experience. Um, can you share with us what is your approach in that, especially in a world that uh, people do not have much time uh, to learn or talk or reflect about values and ethics? Uh, the world has changed uh, quite a lot. So I would like to ask you, uh, what do you think is the role of ethics and values in education? Um, well, and how, how, how can, what should be the approach of, of the teacher in bringing values and ethics into an education setting? Again, uh, my way of teaching was always uh, not pontificating and giving long lectures that students then wrote down things in their notebooks and went home and answered little questions about on the test. Um, I um, taught largely by dialogue. I also taught, um, uh, this is a big subject because in, in, as you know and recognize university education is undergoing incredible transformations today. And the kind of attention to the humanities and the liberal arts which support ethics um, has been diminishing for some time. So students do not have, unfortunately, the exposure that they once had uh, to- Totally not, there's a vacuum. Yes, in terms of precisely. Uh, and that is, it, it, I, I talk with my colleagues about that all the time, Miriam. And uh, here, uh, it, it's true here at the University of Arizona, where I now am, and it, it's, it's just, you know, they're pushed off. They are, the students are encouraged to pursue technical and uh, business commercial uh, interest uh, and careers, and they are not challenged to think about their fundamental values. But what is the role? What's the role of ethics and values in it? Well, the ethics, the, the role is the role of the university or what used to be the role of the university, which is to place under critical uh, examination by every uh, capacity that human beings possibly can marshal of reason and experience and the traditions, the great traditions of the world, which again, students are not being introduced to adequately by any means. Um, the questions of what is human life worth and worth for? What is the purpose of our lives? What is the purpose of our societies? What is the purpose right now of this species in this so-called Anthropocene epoch on this planet? And that's what I kept triggering. And the students were eager to pursue that because they never have an opportunity to talk about such things. Why should we be spending trillions of dollars sending people off into space when we're not taking care of the planet itself? 
what is it in our culture that makes us do that? What is it that makes us want to deny the limits of nature, of our own being, of our own physical being, of our own lives with each other, the fact that we have to deal with limits um, and make, as Shakespeare would say, a sonnet is made out of limits. You make a beautiful thing by adhering to the limits of what the sonnet form is. And the same thing would be said about the earth. We're given an earth with magnificent potential if we live within its limits and weave it into a beautiful sonnet. But that's that's whole thing different than sending spaceships to Mars, which is what you know mm. our dear president of the United States wants to have happen. Um, so the role of ethics and values in education uh, being as a, offering a space for people to ask the ultimate the questions of our ultimate loyalties to what do we finally remain faithful that's the question and i find that the whole human experiment the whole human history is at stake right now i'm as indebted i feel as much obligation to the past as i do to the future generations it's a, a form of modernity right now that uh, that's prevailed where we always talk about the future. But my goodness, we have undergone thousands of years of evolution that have brought us to this point. And we have obligations to be faithful to the aspirations of the best of our past, mm -hmm. to our ancestors. It's a very, as you know, it's a very fundamental tenet of most indigenous traditions to be concerned for their ancestors. And that is, again, what are we to be faithful to? What, what is the purpose of this species? It's not just given to buy more and more trinkets. Hmm. So that's, <laughs> these are ultimately, and why I've always walked the, the line between philosophy and theology, these are ultimately religious questions. Hmm. They're questions having to be the vocation of our species, the calling of our species. And therefore, your approach in an education setting, the classroom, the approach you taught social ethics was therefore through dialogue, stimulating dialogue. And to questioning. ask those, yes, to put those questions before them and let them find a voice for their experiences. For one thing, to share the um, experiences that gave them a, a some kind of an ethical compass in life. Did they get it from their family? Did they get it from the, uh, a religious text or community? Did they get it from, as I did, from public schooling in some way? From Did they get it from some kind of social movement they participated in? Did they get it from a poem? There's a, right now, one of the most hopeful things happening, at least in the United States, is that uh, efflorescence of poetry. It's unbelievable. People are writing poems all over the place. Students, I would have students come in with their most precious poem, the poem they would be shy of sharing because it's what they would read at night to allow them to go to sleep and get up the next morning. And that it could be from a established text or it could be a poem they wrote themselves. So we did base my teaching in ethics on experience first, and then try to bring in the wisdom of the world's cultural 
philosophical and theological thought. But that, you know, that, that, that's a big project and that's a lifelong project. And I also tried to get them to understand that they were now launching themselves on a life that would be one of search and learning with regard to ethics. They weren't going to get it all down straight right now. Um, and they were going to get directions. They were going to learn resources. They were going to have companions that they could talk to all, uh, hopefully in the future with, but that was going to be a lifelong search and they needed a community to do that. So the earth charter community means the world to a lot of people precisely for that reason, it seems to me. Mm. Well, you certainly have made such a, an impact in many people's lives. Um, I'm sure throughout your years as a professor, as an, in, as an activist, uh, you have uh, offered such a great contribution to the field of global ethics, environmental ethics, and certainly to the Earth Shara movement. So I want to thank you deeply and express uh, my gratitude and the gratitude of many of us involved in the Earth Shara movement to you for your contribution, Ron. Thank you. And Miriam, thank you for your leadership these many years. Thank you so much. If you like this episode, please share it and support our movement by making a donation. This podcast is developed by Earth Charter International as part of our work as UNESCO Chair on Education for Sustainable Development with the Earth Charter. For more information, visit our website at earthcharter.org.